frustrating that there we go. The sound guys are like, come on, come on. Hey, everybody stand up. I always love to pray before bringing the word. Just in case you were wondering, I was raised Catholic and we stand, sit, kneel all the time. And the only ones that understand that are former Catholics or Catholics. So anyway, uh, it's great to be here. I I feel so honored, so loved, so welcome. Thank you so much, Pastor Tom. And um, I I just appreciate you, your family. Your daughter was up here worshiping this morning. How amazing is that? And it was the third daughter. That's what's really amazing, okay? Because anybody that's had more than three kids, you understand the third one is always the out-of-the-box child, right? So anyway, um, I, um, I'm very honored to be here, very honored to be in Madison, Wisconsin. I am a graduate from Purdue University. That's where I got saved. That's where I met my wife. So Purdue, I love. People are always like, oh, you, why would you like it here? Because I am a Big Ten fan. You understand? I live out in Colorado. I lived in Florida. I am so fed up with the SEC. I am just... <laughs> So delighted to be around Big Ten people. All right. So, so anyway, uh, it's great to be here. Um, I love the Midwest. I grew up just across the lake, uh, Whitehall, Michigan. In case you don't know where that is, the Milwaukee Quick Clipper, which I'm still trying to figure out why it's not called the Muskegon Clipper. Um, but anyway, that boat goes across the lake. It goes to Muskegon. We are 13 miles north. That's where I was raised. So I love the Midwest people. I understand the Midwest people. They are the people who are keeping our country afloat. I really believe it. Okay. And so I honor you. I thank you for having, you know, the morals and the standards that you do as Midwesterners. But anyway, this is from a man who travels all over the world. I've been literally uh, the beginning of this year, you know, the first two months of this year was Singapore, Vietnam, Indonesia, two, two places, New Zealand, Australia, back to New Zealand, Egypt, and Israel. All right. That was just January and February of this year. I'm getting ready to go to Novosibirsk, uh, Russia next month. That is the third largest city in Russia in Siberia. You have to go through Beijing, China to, just to get there. Okay. So, I mean, I've been all over the world, but let me tell you, I appreciate the people of the Midwest so much. So thank you for being the people that you are. Amen. Um, a lot of you don't know a lot about us. Uh, let me introduce my family to you. I think that's the best way to introduce uh, myself to you because these are the people I love so much and I don't think I have a family right now. Anyway, uh, I hope I have a family. Anyway, I think they're probably working real hard to try to get this PowerPoint going. But um, my wife, Lisa, and I, uh, God launched us to travel and preach the gospel uh, globally in 1990. And there they are. There she is. And that we will be married 35 years this October 2nd. Uh, She... She's my best. She's my best friend and lover. And uh, I told her a few months ago, if you were single, I'd be so on your trail. And um, we have four sons. You see our daughter-in-law on the extreme left. That's Juliana. And Addison's her husband. Um, her husband. He is the COO of Messenger International. Arden is with me. He's just next to Addison. He's our baby. And Austin is our second born next to Lisa. And Alec is our third born. He's the one that gave me the understanding of out of of the box 
children. But anyway, those four little ones, those are our G babies. You say, what in the world's a G baby? I'm way too young to be grandpa, so it's G daddy and G for short. And so that is my family. I'm very, very much in love. All four of our sons work with us in the ministry. Actually, Alec is on an internship in San Diego right now. And so I, I, I have really come to learn how much God loves us as a family by how much I love my family. I think I've learned that experientially. So I can only imagine how much his heart is for us. Can you believe that? Amen. Now, I, I just want to say I'm in awe of this church. Um, First of all, God had to raise up a a unique leader. I heard about the merging of the two churches a few years ago. That is a miracle. I've traveled all over the United States to see this done in a healthy way, in in a successful way. It can only be the Spirit of God. So that means that there is a destiny on this church to really impact and change this city, right? Amen. You know, it's all about, it's all about invading our cities and bringing heaven to our cities. A church has an apostolic call on it. An apostolic call is you bring the culture of heaven and you bring it into your city. Don't ever allow the city of Madison to form you. You form it. And you have the power to do it if you'd only realize it. The problem is most Christians, there's church, there's life. And they don't realize the two are the same. All right? We are called to go out into the field and change it to preach what the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to bring heaven back into earth because the devil stole it away years ago, right? And so that's your commission, and that's what your pastor so passionately desires. We should be affecting every area, the medical field, the educational field, the government, athletics, and that is what we are called to do. So I don't want to really travel all the way here to Madison, leave my family for the weekend just to preach you a message. I absolutely would hate that. It would bug me, okay, to leave my family for a couple days just to bring you a message. I want to see you changed. I want to see the Holy Spirit do such a work that you will never be the same. The only way we can have that is if we ask him. The Bible says you don't have because you don't ask, correct? Right? Right? So, I need you to join with me that we just don't have a service today, that we literally are changed forever. I could be the best communicator on the planet, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't touch these words, it's just information. And information doesn't change people. Transformation is what we need. Can you say amen for that? All right? So let's believe God. Let's believe him right now together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. Lord, the life church. What a great name for a church. Because Jesus, you are our life. You are the only source of life. And so I'm asking today, Holy Spirit of God, that you would literally invade this sanctuary. That you would do a work that would amaze us. Reveal Jesus in a way like we've never known him before. And I'm asking that as you do this, we would go from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the living God. Father, we don't want just a message. We want our lives impacted and changed forever. That Lord Life Church will never be the same as a result. That Madison will never be the same as a result. That every family and individual will never be the same as a result of what you do today. For I declare your kingdom has come within us. Therefore your will shall be done in this place on earth as it is in heaven. And for this we give you all the honor, the praise, and the glory, and the thanksgiving. And it is in Jesus' mighty name And everybody that agrees shouts, come on, give him praise for what he's going to do. Amen. Amen. You can be seated.
So uh, Messenger International, just to give you a little, just because again, I'm trying to help you. It's really tough to connect to people with people in just five minutes, right? When you've never met them before, but Messenger International, our passion is to build strong local New Testament churches because the church is going to change the world. Amen? Amen. It's not, it's not television that's really going to change the world. It will influence the world. What will change the world is strong local churches. And so our passion at Messenger International is the strength of the local New Testament church. Um, to that end, we have been, by the grace of God in the last seven years, able to give away 15 million resources to pastors and leaders in 94 nations in 106 languages. It, if you would have told me this seven years ago, I would have laughed you out of the room. It's mind-blowing. It sounds almost too large to be real, but it actually is really real. And so um, we... We love the church. We know that pastors all over the world are desperate for revelation teaching, for uh, the teaching that will bring change into their communities. So that's what we're all about. America is certainly part of it. That's why I travel to Madison, Wisconsin and leave my family because I believe in the local church so strongly. Can you say amen? amen? Greatest thing we can do is get behind the vision of the local church, support the pastor. Don't ever allow your mind and your thoughts to go in a way contrary to what the vision of this church is. Hey, Peter was kind of out of sync, you know, all the time. You know, he actually chose apostle to change, to, to replace Jesus, Judas by drawing lots. I mean, how many of you know God doesn't use a lottery system to pick apostles? Come on, Peter, what are you doing, right? Even Paul said, I was one born out of due time. Paul was God's choice to replace Judas, right? But you know what is amazing? Right after Peter, completely out of sync, he, he wasn't sinning. He was, he was out of sync. You understand what I'm saying? Because they were one, God changed the entire city of Jerusalem. Okay? If a pastor tells you to sin, get out of the church. Okay? But you know what? That's not the issue in America. It's the fact that God is looking for churches to be one. Are you with me? So, I mean... Everybody does things differently. Who cares? This is a little different. As long as it's not sin, let's go with it. Get on board and be one so we can change our cities. Can you say amen to that? All right. Now, today, I want to talk to you about something that's just really been stirring in me the last couple of years. Um, I'm going to open it up by saying this. Today in our society, and this mentality even creeps into the church. If we judge something to be good, we automatically assume it's of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we identify something, because identification is a big word today, right? If we identify something as being good, we automatically assume it's God. Because we've almost made good in God synonymous. Because after all, aren't we born with the inherent knowledge of what is right and wrong? But now let me say this, if good is so obvious, why then does the writer of Hebrews tell us that we have to have discernment to exercise and understand and recognize the difference between good and evil? Why does it say that, if good's so obvious? I mean, King Solomon, before he took his throne, God appears to him and says, ask me anything you want, Right? And what does the guy ask for? He asked for an understanding heart that he might be able to tell the difference between good and evil. I mean, can I paint this picture here? God appears to him and says, ask me anything you want. And he asks the difference between right and wrong. I don't think good is as obvious as we have thought it to be. Are you with me? I mean, you would think it's a good idea to preserve the life of your friend. Yet Peter does this with Jesus and Jesus sharply corrects him. 
He says, you're mindful only of the things of men, not of God, right? If you remember, the rich young ruler comes running up to Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what do I do to get saved? And before Jesus answers the all-important question of how to be saved, what, what does he do? He looks at the guy and says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. Now, is Jesus not good? No, he's perfect good. But what Jesus is saying to this guy is you have a reference point for good. God has a reference point for good. The two aren't the same. Don't put me in your category. See, good is all about a reference point. You can have two families moving into identical homes. They're three-bedroom, two-bath homes, right? For one family, it's a good move. For one family, it's a bad move. The family, it's a good move. They just moved out of a double-wide trailer, right? The family, it's a bad move. They just moved out of a $3 million estate. I remember when God made this really clear to me. I had flown to Stockholm, Sweden to speak to 6,000 leaders, mostly from Eastern Europe, Russia, and the Middle East. And I remember, you know, when you fly from the United States to Europe, you land usually in Europe at like 6 or 7 or 8 in the morning. So I had all day to pray. Because I basically don't speak Swedish, right? So uh, I'm praying in my room for hours. And in my prayer time in that hotel room in Sweden, I had judged a certain situation to be good. And I'll never forget this. The Holy Spirit said, no, son, it's not good in my eyes. Now, I was a little perplexed by this statement. And I found myself getting in a little wrestling match with the Holy Spirit. And finally, I put my foot down and said, but God... All the good that's come out of this situation. And this is, this is what the Lord said when I said that. And this is what changed my life. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve was attracted to. He said it was the good side. I went, what? Now, my Bible's laying on the bed. I fly over to Genesis. And when I read the words, when the woman saw the tree was good, and the word good leapt up off the page. That it was pleasant, it was desirable, it would make her wise. She partook. And I'm standing there in shock. And the Holy Spirit says this to me. He said, son, there is a good that will lead people away from me. And all of a sudden, in that moment, a lot of my questions got answered. First of all, one of the big ones was the one that's bothered me for years. You know, when Jesus talks about our day, the day we're living in, do you know what the first thing he says is? Do not be deceived. You know, there's really only one problem with deception, and that's this. It's deceiving. (laughs) The person who's deceived believes with all their heart they're right, when in reality they're wrong. That's scary. And he goes on to say that deception would be so powerful that if possible, the elect would be deceived. Now, that's bothered me. That's, the elect are Christians. Christians deceived. How can Christians be deceived? And right there in that hotel room, I realized it's not drug-infested parties. It's not satanic rock concerts. It's not sexual orgies that are going to mislead, if possible, Christians in these days. It's evil that is masked with good. 
The Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way, there's a method, there's wisdom that seems right. It seems beneficial. It seems profitable. It seems acceptable. It seems good to a man. But its end, where it ultimately takes you, is where you don't want to find yourself. The way of death. And then Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Corinthian church, makes this statement. He says, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Everybody say corrupted. Something that's corrupted was once right. Just as Eve was deceived, there's that word deceived, by the cunning ways of the serpent. Now, I remember when God showed me the scripture after that time in Sweden, I was like, whoa, Paul's using the same example to this Corinthian church that the Holy Spirit used with me in that hotel room in Sweden. So I thought, maybe there's more to this Eve and Adam thing than I've known. Maybe there's more to it. So I started praying. You know what the first thing that God showed me when I started praying was? Eve was never lied to. She was never gossiped about. She was never raped, never spoken too harshly by a father. Do you understand she lived in a perfect environment? And let's make it even more complex. She lived in an environment that was permeated with the presence of God. How does the enemy get her to turn on God in that environment? Because if we can understand how he can get her to turn on God in that environment, we can understand how he can corrupt us in this bad environment. Correct? So I started really praying and seeking, there's got to be more to this, and sure enough, there is. So let's do the story. We all know it. Okay, let me go through it really quick. God creates the heavens and the earth, right? He doesn't create a garden, he plants a garden. That to me is mind-blowing. I've seen some of the most beautiful gardens in the world that men have created. Can you imagine a garden that God plants? (laughs) Okay, so he creates this man breathes the breath of life into him, and he says to this man, he he just basically says this, he says, you can freely eat of any tree in the garden. Now, that's his generosity. Now, a lot of people don't see that as very generous because they think there's just two trees in the garden. I got news for you. Horticulturists tell us that there are over over 2,500 different fruit-bearing trees on this planet. So, you know what I have to believe? At least one of each of those is represented in this garden. So you know what God's saying to him? You can freely eat from 2,499 of these trees, Adam. Now, have you ever stopped and talked about, thought about all that God's done for us? I mean, did you wake up this morning? Did you have a roof over your head? Did you have a nice soft mattress? Did you have covers? Did you have clean water? Did you meet friends when you came here? I could go on all day of all the generous things that God has done for you and me, right? But now, do you want to know why I really like being here right now? Because this guy actually likes me. (laughs) I mean, this is really nice. I've gone to places where I'm like, why did you even invite me? But, you know, as as human beings, don't you want people to actually like you? Hello? Nobody paid him to have me come, right? You see what I'm saying? How many of you know God's no different? 
God doesn't want to be forced into a relationship that a person doesn't want to have with him. So God just can't like make this garden perfect and not give him a choice. So God says, except, so you can freely eat from 2,499, except this one in the middle that gives the knowledge of what's good and evil. If you, if you don't want a relationship with me anymore, just eat from that one. You'll die, but that's just the way it is. So God brings all the animals to Adam and he names them. I mean, some people think Adam and Eve were a bit ditzy. <laughs> how, how, how many people you know that could name 1.25 million species of animals and then remember what he named each one without Google? I mean, that's crazy, right? So after he gets through naming all of these animals, God says, man, there's not a helper suitable. So you know the story. God puts him into a deep sleep, takes the rib out, right? Creates the lady, brings the lady to Adam. And when Adam sees her, he goes, whoa, man. And it kind of stuck. Whoa, man, you know? So that's... Okay, that was really bad. My family always says you're the funniest when you're not trying to be funny. <laughs> so <clears throat> the enemy targets her, not him. And there is a reason. And it's not because she's a woman. It's not because women are inferior to men. If you ever hear somebody tells you a woman's inferior to man, run for the hills. I mean, just get out of there as fast as possible. That is ridiculous. Well, isn't the woman the weaker vessel? <laughs> vessel. Right? All that means is she can't bench press as much as a man. That's all it means. Okay? She's an heir together in the grace of life. Right? So, um, he targets her, and, and that's all chapter 2 in the book, so you can read that later. Okay? Um, but the reason is, is she had more communicated knowledge where Adam had revelation knowledge. So, there's your reason you read about in the book. So, the enemy's got a four-step strategy of how to get her to turn on God. Four steps. Man, if you understand this, you're going to understand how he can corrupt us in a corrupt environment, right? All right, phase one, what does he do? First thing he says to her, and, and, and believe me, you say, how can a snake talk? I personally believe all the animals talked in the garden. Why do I believe that? Because a few generations later, Balaam's donkey talked, and it, he didn't faint, okay, like you or I would. Why? Because oral tradition probably passed down. You've got to remember, Balaam's not too many generations from Adam. The animals talked in the garden. That's one of the things they lost under the curse, right? So this totally Satan-possessed snake comes up to her, and he's got a four-step strategy. And the first thing he says to her is, so you can't eat from every tree, can you? So what has he done with this one statement? He's gotten her eyes off the 2,499 that she can freely eat from. And gets her eyes on the one that's forbidden. That's exactly what he wants to do with you. He wants to get your eyes off of all the amazing things that God has done for you and given you. And get your eyes onto the one or two things that are restrained from you. Yeah, that's good preaching. So she responds. She says, hey, we can eat from the trees except for this one. And, but but you got to remember, she's responding correctly but her eyes are now focused on what's being withheld. You understand? He's got her focus off the 2,499 onto the one he wants her focused on. You got it? So then he goes to phase two of his strategy. And what's phase two? 
to deny the word of God. He goes, you won't die. Now, how often does the enemy do that? How often does he do this with us? Let me give you an example. You got a young guy and a young girl. They meet in church. They fall in love. They can't be married for a couple of years. One day they kind of look at each other and go, you know what? You pay rent. I pay rent. And it's expensive here in Madison. You pay utilities. I pay utilities. You pay cable TV. I pay direct TV. Let's move in together. Man, we'll save so much money. We'll be able to save for our future. We'll be able to give more in church. Now, what have they just done? They've negated Ephesians chapter 5 that says, don't let sexual immorality once be named among you. They've negated 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, avoid the very appearance of evil. They've negated Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 that says, the marriage bed is undefiled, but adulterers and fornicators God will judge. They've negated it with what is good, what's acceptable to our society, what's profitable for our future, what's beneficial, what is good. You seeing this? And once he does, does this with her, he then goes to phase three. Everybody say phase three. Now, this is the phase where he's going to put the, the dagger in her, okay? This is the one that's going to take her life. He starts out phase three with for God knows. Now, what is he implying by saying for God knows? God knows something you don't. In other words, God is hiding something from you, Eve. Because God knows the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be just like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil, right? Now, you got to remember, he's got her eyes off to 2,499, and her focus is on this one. And while she's looking at this tree, she realizes it's good. Everybody say good. good. So now her mind starts going down the road. Wait a minute. There is something good in that tree for my husband and I, and God is withholding it. So what has he done with this statement? He has perverted the character of God in her eyes. He is now making God look like a taker instead of the giver that he is in her eyes. The moment, see, what he's done is he's attacked the very foundation of God's throne. Because David says, your throne is established on righteousness and justice. I mean, David knows for you to be an enduring ruler, you have to be a ruler of integrity. What he has done is attacked the very integrity of God and made him now look like a taker instead of a giver. The moment he does that, she turns on God. Because God's withholding from us something that is good for me. The moment that she starts thinking along that lines, she partakes. And step four is a piece of cake. He offers her the good that God has been withholding from her. This is why James comes along and says to us in the New Testament, do not be deceived. Now that sounds like a command, but it's actually not a command. It is a promise. What James is saying here is if you get the truth that I am about to share with you in this letter, you will never be deceived. 
In other words, you will become deceived proof. I don't know about you, but in a day when Jesus tells me the deception will be so potent that if possible Christians will be deceived, I want to know how to be deceived proof. Does anybody join me on that one? All right, so how do you become deceived proof? Get this truth in you. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, of whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Okay, James, would you talk in my vernacular? What are you saying? This is what he's saying here. He's saying if you get this truth in you, here it is, you'll never be deceived. There is nothing good for you outside of God. That's what he's saying. There is nothing good for you outside of God. I don't care how good it looks. I don't care how beneficial it seems, how profitable it appears, how sweet she talks to you, and how rude your wife has been talking to you lately. If it is contrary to the written word of God, it will ultimately, in the end, bring you to a place you don't want to find yourself. So... What's our reference point? Remember I said good is all about a reference point. What's our reference point? Paul writes these words right before he's beheaded, two years before he's he's taken from the earth, right? Paul says all scripture, everybody say all scripture, scripture. is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true, what is good, and to make us realize what is wrong, what is bad in our lives. It corrects us. It corrects us. Everybody say corrects us. When we're wrong, bad. Somebody goes, I don't like correction. You don't like correction? Watch this. It's in the middle. There you go. Turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Red, Red, Make a U-turn. I'm pretty sure I've been here before. I think I know what I'm doing. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Make a U-turn. Rerouting. U-turn. Make a U-turn. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. Obviously, you don't know where you're going. All right. Make a U-turn and proceed to Red Rock Ranch Drive. if you don't know where you've been, how do you know where you're going? You don't. Make a U-turn. Okay, so what's so wrong with correction? I mean, if you're on the wrong road, it gets you on the right road. If you're on the right road, it keeps you on the right road. So you don't end up in Saskatchewan, Canada when you want to go to San Diego, California. So scripture is a reference point. Now you say, okay, John, why are you taking so much time to talk about this? Because I'm going to tell you why. In 35 years of traveling all over the world, especially the United States, I have never in my life seen the scripture under such attack. I'm not talking about outside in society. That's been that way all my life. I'm talking about inside the church. 
There are Christians, there are circles, there are groups that are literally removing scriptures from the New Testament because it doesn't line up with the doctrine they like. Do you understand what I'm saying? So can I talk about the scriptures for just a few minutes? Can we just, can we just talk about this? The Bible, right? 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years. Would you go back 1,500 years just for reference point? If you go back 1,500 years, you're at 517 AD. Do you understand the British Empire hadn't even existed yet? Do you understand you're only 200 years after Constantine of Rome? I mean, that's a long time ago, right? 66 books written over that long of a time period. By over 40 writers, now listen, from three different continents in three different languages. Many of those writers didn't even live in the same generation. So many of them don't even know what the other guys wrote. You put it all together after 1,500 years and you get a perfectly harmonized book called the Bible? Come on. Really? Go back to 517, pick out a guy, say write a chapter. Then go to 617, pick out a guy in another country, tell him to write a chapter. Do the same with over 40 writers. Come to 2017 and tell me you got a book that makes any sense. Let's sweeten the deal. Can we sweeten the deal? The Old Testament, 39 books written over 1,100 years. 1,100 years. With the last book of the Old Testament written 400 years before Jesus was born. Would you go back 400 years? You got no Wisconsin. You got no Green Bay Packers. You got, I mean, I mean, I mean, the pilgrims haven't even got on the boat yet. Are you with me? Okay. Now, these 39 books are written over 1,100 years by many different writers. Many of them don't even live in the same generation, don't even know what the other guys wrote. Yet they made predictions about the coming Messiah. Predictions like... He'd be called out of Egypt. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would ride in Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be betrayed. He would be betrayed by a friend. That friend would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. These are all different writers I'm quoting. Uh, that 30 pieces of silver would buy a Potiphar's field. He would be crucified. He'd be buried in a brand new tomb. Do you know there's over 300 of these predictions made? And the last predictions made 400 years before Jesus is born. And yet Jesus comes along and fulfills all 300 of these predictions. What are the chances? Do you know there's actually a scientist that lived in the 20th century that wanted to know what the chances were? His name is Dr. Peter Stoner. Okay. Now, Dr. Stoner was an expert in probability. What is probability? Simple probability. If I've got a five-gallon paint bucket and I got nine white tennis balls and one yellow tennis ball and I shake them all up and I blindfold the guy and I say, pick out one ball. The chance of picking out the one yellow tennis ball is one in 10. That's simple probability. Well, this guy's an expert. But he doesn't do his research alone. He employs 600 science students from 12 different classes. And they go on this massive research of what, what are the chances that any human being could fulfill just eight of these prophecies? And not only that, any human being on earth over a 2,000 year period from the time of Christ till the end of the 20th century. Okay? Now, their research was confirmed by a third party. Do you know who the third party was? The National American Scientific Council. 
They said not only was Dr. Stoner's work accurate, it was conservative. So what I'm about to share with you is conservative. Everybody say conservative. So Dr. Stoner and his 600 scientists picked out these eight prophecies. Look at them. Number one, Christ to be born in Bethlehem. Micah writes that. Number two, Christ to be preceded by a messenger. Isaiah, Malachi, and totally different generations write that. Number three, Christ to enter in Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah in a completely different generation writes that. Christ to be betrayed by a friend. The psalmist in a totally different generation writes that. And here's the rest of the eight. These are the eight prophecies they picked, right? So now they do hours of calculations, right, studies and everything, what are the chances that any human being on earth can fulfill those eight predictions, right? You know what their conclusion was that is conservative? The chances of any human being fulfilling those eight is one in 10 to the 17 power. What does 10 to the 17 power mean? It is the number one with 17 zeros behind them. Does anybody even know what that number is? It is not bazillion kajillion. I know that. I don't know that number, but I can illustrate that number. If I have that many silver dollars, you know our American silver dollar, right? If I have that many silver dollars, I have no place to store them on the earth. I just got to spread them out across the ground. And if I have that many silver dollars, I will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Now, mark one of those silver dollars. Shuffle them all up. Blindfold a guy in Oklahoma. Put him on a helicopter. Start flying over Texas. He tells the pilot to go. He's still blindfolded, though. And at any point, he says, let down. He gets out of the helicopter blindfolded, picks one silver dollar. The chances of picking that one silver dollar is the chances that any human being on earth over 2,000 years could have fulfilled those eight prophecies, yet Jesus fulfilled all eight. That's where you clap. So can we go a little further? <laughs> Dr. Stoner and the scientists said, well, what about 16 prophecies? What are the chances that anybody on earth could fulfill 16 of the prophecies? You know, after hours of calculations, you know what the answer is? One in 10 to the 45th power. That is the number one with 45 zeros behind. Now, if I have that many silver dollars, I, don't, I can't even store them on the earth. I've got to make a big ball, of silver, a solid globe of silver, do, silver dollars, right? Do you know how big that globe would be, that sphere would be, the diameter of that sphere would be 60 times the distance of the earth to the sun. If you want miles, it's 5.5 billion miles. Now, mark one of those silver dollars, shuffle them all up, blindfold a guy, put him on a jet. It would take 400 years nonstop to fly around that globe. At any point in time, he says, get, let, let it down. He gets out. Now, remember, he might have to dig 2.75 billion miles to the center because the Mark 1 might be in the center. But he does this blindfold. The chances of picking out our one Mark silver dollar is a chance that any human being on earth could have fulfilled 16 of those prophecies written in the Old Testament. Yet Jesus fulfilled all 16. That's where you clap again. Okay. (laughs) Can I blow your mind? Can you just give me one more minute to blow your mind? So they said, all right. 48 prophecies. Let's just do 48. So after hours and hours and hours of calculations, this is what they determined. The chances of any human being, remember this is conservative, of any human being on earth fulfilling 48 of the prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros behind a 1. <laughs> now, if I have that many silver dollars, we can't even comprehend it. So I got to go to a smaller object. I got I to go to an electron. Do you know how big an electron is? If I have a one inch line of straight electrons, line them up end to end, end right? One inch line. 
and I start counting those electrons right now, and I count 250 per minute, and I don't go to sleep, it'll take me 19 million years to count that one inch line of electrons. <laughs> now, if I have that many electrons, I got to make a big ball, a big sphere of solid electrons. Do you know how big the sphere would be? be as far as man's ever seen into space with the space telescope, Hubble Space Telescope, 13 billion light years would be the radius of that sphere. Now, mark one of those electrons, <laughs> blindfold a guy, put him on a space shuttle, send him out there. At any point in time, he says, stop. He gets out, he picks out a one electron, blindfolded though. The chance of picking out our one marked electron is the chance that any human being on earth can fulfill 48 of those prophecies over 2,000 years. Yet not only does Jesus fulfill the 48, he fulfills all 300. So, so can, can I review what we just said here? Can we just review this? We have 300 predictions written by several different writers over the course of 1,100 years, many of them not living in the same generation, many of them not even knowing what the other guys wrote. The last one's written 400 years before Jesus is born. And Jesus comes along 400 years later and fulfills all 300. And you tell me the Bible doesn't apply to today? You're stupid. <laughs> I didn't write that. I didn't write that. The Bible says he who hates correction is stupid. Okay, Proverbs 12, 1, you can look it up later, okay? <laughs> there you go, we've even got it. Now, can you understand, does this help you understand what the writer of Hebrews says to us in the New Testament? I want you to look at these words now in the light of what I've just said. We must, not it's a good idea, we must listen very, not just carefully, very carefully to the truth we've heard or we may drift away from it. How many of you know drifting doesn't happen knowingly? It happens unknowingly. When I was a boy growing up in Whitehall, Michigan, you know, we got White Lake over there that connects into Lake Michigan. I loved to fish. And uh, as a boy, you know what I'd do? I'd go out and fish. Well, one time I was so excited about fishing, I forgot to anchor. So I'm fishing away for 30 minutes, and I look up 30 minutes later, I don't even recognize the shoreline. I have drifted so far away from where I started. Drifting doesn't happen knowingly. It happens unknowingly. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You had to cross a landmine field, 10 miles long, 10 miles wide, and there's thousands of landmines buried. You step on one of them, you're dead. Somebody gives you a map and shows you where every one of these landmines are. How do you handle the map? Do you just um, throw it in your backpack and say, I'll read it if I got time? You do, they will carry you out in a body bag. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to study the map. You're going to diligently study it. You're not going to let the Minnesota Vikings or Green Bay Packers interrupt your study time. You're going to make sure you get it in. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, isn't it interesting? We can watch a two-hour football game, but we can't read the Word of God. But anyway, that's another story. But, but you're going to study it, and you're going to put it in a place easier to reach than your water bottle. And you're going to pull it out every two steps. Let me tell you something. We're walking through a landmine field. It's called the world. That's why we're told that word is a lamp under my feet and it's a light under my path. 
When I was writing this book, the book is titled Good or God. I've got it right here. When I was writing this book, I had three different international speakers, ministers. If I said their names, you'd probably know all three. Over a nine-month period, looked at me and said, John Bevere, you're writing one of the most important books God has given the body of Christ to date. Now, when the first guy said it, I was like, come on, beta Satan. It's almost two million copies now. It's, it's changed so many lives. So the second guy says, and I was like, hmm, the third guy said it? Nine months later after the first guy? I was like, okay, God, I get it. Why? Why this book? Why is this book so important? And you know what the Lord said to me? He said, it's a calibration book. I thought, calibration book? You calibrate a machine to get accurate readings. Right? You follow me? So I thought, ah, let me, let me, let me kind of study this out a little bit. Let me research it. So I found out the word calibration today is used most frequently in regard to gas detectors that are put in chemical factories. Our federal law requires that every room in a chemical factory has to have a gas detector. Why? Because a little bit of gas will, what? Hurt the employees for the rest of their life or may even kill them if there's a gas leak, right? Toxic gas. Now, the number one manufacturer of these gas detectors is a company called Honeywell. So I went to Honeywell's website. Now remember, this is not a Christian website. This is Honeywell's website. So I go to the search page and I say, tell me how to uh, calibrate your gas detector. It takes me right to the page on the website where the technicians pull down to, to do their calibration, right? And you know what it said in big bold letters at the top of the page? We as a company strongly recommend that you calibrate these gas detectors daily. And they gave the reason. They said, because the atmosphere can corrupt the sensors. So now I'm going to make the process simple because it was really technical. The technician would take the, calibrate, uh, uh, the gas detector down. They'd bring them into a clean air room, clean off the sensors, re-zero out the machine, put it back out in the factory so they know they were going to get accurate readings that day. You following me? Well, our heart is our sensor. We live in a corrupt environment. It's called the world. Every day we should be going into the clean air room. It's called the Word of God and the presence of God. Our sensor gets cleansed so that when we go out into the corrupt environment, we're not conformed to it. But we prove. See, it's not a formula. We prove what is good perfect and acceptable will of God. Can I tell you, I'm traveling all over America. I've been, I've preached the gospel in 49 states, practically every major city in the country. Can I tell you, I, I get a bird's eye view. Our church in America is out of calibration. Let me just give you one simple example. I mean, there are so many I can give. Three years ago when the Supreme Court ruled on same-sex marriage, right? Remember that? That shouldn't have surprised you. It, sh- it didn't surprise me. I knew it was inevitable. Why? Because the Bible, te- because the Bible tells us in the last days they're going to call evil good and good evil. Why? Why? Because their understanding is darkened. They're under the influence of the God of this world. They're under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. That's why they call evil good and good evil. So that didn't surprise me. This is what shocked me. 
I, I have, you know, I don't know what I had then, but today I've got a, a million people on my Facebook, right? So I made two comments after the Supreme Court ruling to leaders and believers. I said, hey, here's a great opportunity for us, you know, and, and wrote about it, right? And put scripture on it, right? Well, I got 30,000 comments. And you know what shocked me was all the Christians that were applauding what our government did. They were saying, love wins today. I'm like, love wins? Love won like 2,000 years ago when our creator shed every drop of blood for us to free us. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is just representative of what I'm seeing. The bird's eye view. I mean, can we just look at what Paul says to the Corinthian church? This is like, okay, here we go. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Okay? Those who indulge in sexual sin. Whoa, stop. I'm first on the list. Why? I got bound to pornography when I was 11 years old. I became a Christian when I was 19, got married when I was 20 23, and I thought, I'm going to be free. I've married the prettiest girl in the world, but I'm still bound. I went into the ministry in 1983. I'm still bound. So I'm first on the list. But you know what? There were some people that cared enough about me to tell me that Jesus not only shed his blood to free me from the penalty of sin, his blood frees me from the addiction and bondage of sin. They cared enough about me. So on May the 6th, 1985, I got completely delivered and I'm free today. So I'm, I'm, I'm not throwing stones, okay, baby? I'm not throwing stones. I'm just glad somebody cared enough to tell me. And didn't say to me, love wins, John. God understands. Grace covers you, baby. I'd still be in bondage today. Do you understand? So... Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, who worship idols, or commit adultery, or practice homosexuality. You can't have same-sex marriage without practicing homosexuality. I mean, that's two and two equals four, right? All right, so, or thieves. Those are people who cheat on their taxes, or greedy people, drunkards, or abusive, or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so how can so many Christians start saying, oh, it's fine. God understands. Not only understands, we applaud it. Love wins. Okay, we're deceived. Like, majorly. And so Jesus' prophecy, I'm seeing it fulfilled right before my very eyes. Because so many Christians are like, come on. See, if you read Romans chapter 1, it's not just those who practice it, it's those who approve those who practice it, that the judgment of God's going to come on. So, are we out of calibration? Yeah. Now, why is it so important that we're in calibration? Because, you know how many Christians are frustrated because God doesn't talk to them? 
because they don't see the hand of God in their lives? Why? God says, your sins have separated you from me. doesn't say separated me from you. You separate yourself. So now it's like trying to find 89.7, your favorite radio station, but you're at 90.5. And you're wondering, well, I'm going to church out of the motions, but, you know, let's just be real. God's just not in my life. I'm not sensing his presence. He doesn't talk to me. Well, hello, did you ever think you're out of calibration? Good preaching, John. Amen. Thank you so much. (laughs) Second reason you want to be in calibration is the only Jesus the world is going to see is us. So how are we going to represent him? As a knockoff Jesus? That's what Israel did. They created the calf and called it Yahweh. But that Yahweh would let him have sexual perverted parties that even the nations were amused at. They said, Yahweh delivered us. They called the calf Yahweh. They didn't call it Ra, an Egyptian God's name, or Baal, or Dagon. They called it Yahweh. So if we created this Jesus who, oh, he understands my sexual addictions and my need to have a girlfriend because my wife's not giving me good sex anymore. And we're deceived. Because why? We've strayed from the word of God. And we have allowed our experience to dictate truth rather than truth to dictate our experience. How are we going to change Madison? You're never going to change anything unless you have fire. You're on fire. Only fire can ignite fire. So you got no fire because why? Because you're out of calibration. You're out of tune. How can you change a city? How do you affect the marketplace, the healthcare? How do you affect the government if you're out of calibration? I'm telling you, we have one of the greatest opportunities than any generation has ever had before. Well, we don't want to talk about sexual preferences. That's not nice. John the Baptist lost his head talking about a man's sexual preference. When are we going to wake up? I mean, but how will people know we love them? Do, do you really mean that? Do you really think that it would have been better for me to be bound to pornography 30 years later right now today Or somebody to tell me, hey, John, that's a sin. Hey, John, don't be deceived. Which one's loving? Oh, I love the child so much. I don't want to interrupt its fun sticking knives into outlets. Gosh. I mean, man, this is a lot of fun for my big grandbaby. How stupid we become. You know what Spurgeon said? We've become so open-minded that our brains are falling out of our head. You know, it really comes back into clear view when you start reading the Bible. You're just like, oh my. Are you seeing this? But I fear, lest somehow the serpent deceived Eve and corrupted her, that he might do to your pure and devotion to Jesus Christ. I think you can understand that better. Did you get something out of this today? Amen. I want every head bowed.
Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, I have preached what you commanded me to preach, and I thank you so very much for what you've done, Holy Spirit. Now, Lord God, I'm asking, draw men and women to Jesus. You know what? You're sitting there right now, and you go, what? I'm out of, out of, I'm, I'm out of calibration with God. I'm out. And I couldn't wait till you're finished, and I, I, I want back in calibration. I repent. And I'm turning back to God. You know, some of you may have never even given your lives to Jesus. You know, let me, let, me just, let me just say it to you like this. When a woman walks down an aisle of a church in a white dress on, you know what she's saying? She's saying goodbye to every man on the planet except for the one she's given her life to. She's given her entire heart and life to that man. You don't get saved by just praying a formula prayer. You get saved by giving your entire heart and your entire life to Jesus. Some of you are sitting here today, and the reason you have been so easily deceived is because you really haven't given your entire heart and life to Jesus Christ. I want to give you a chance. If you say, John, I've not given my life to Jesus, or John, I'm out of calibration, I want you to raise your hand up. I want to pray for you this morning before we dismiss. Just put your hands up high all over this building. Don't be afraid. I want you to be honest. Just put them up high, 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 high. Don't be ashamed. Now just stand up. I want to pray for you this morning. Just stand up in the balcony here on the main floor. Come on, just stand up. Don't ever be ashamed. You've got nothing to be ashamed of. I find it so, so amazing and amusing to me as a former Catholic how we are ashamed because we're standing up responding to something God has spoken to us. You know, I just think, whoa. Why, why would there be any shame in that? Is there anyone? I don't want anyone missed. I don't want you sitting down when you want to be standing up. So I'm gonna, every head bowed, every eye closed, just I'm going to give you another chance. If I want to pray for you, and I know God's going to do something in your life today. So if that's you, stand up. I want to make sure you don't miss out. If you say, John, I want to give myself completely to Jesus. I've been away. I, whatever your situation is, I want to pray for you. All right, looking at about 40% of the building standing up. I want you to just keep your heads bowed. I want all of us to pray this prayer together. Just put your hands up. This is a sign of surrender. And say this with me, God in heaven. Say this strongly. God in heaven, thank you so very much for sending Jesus. Jesus, forgive me for living life more my way than yours. I repent of this today. Today, with a greater understanding than I've ever had before, I give my spirit, soul, and body, everything I am, everything I have, to you, Jesus. Jesus, you are now my Lord, my supreme king. Thank you for forgiving me. I'm cleansed with the blood of Jesus. And from this moment forward, I'm going to find out what you love, and I'm going to love what you love, and I'm going to find out what you hate, and I'm going to hate what you hate. And Lord, I'm asking that I would be calibrated as a disciple of Jesus, representing the kingdom. So fill me with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give him praise and you can be seated. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, let me say this. Here's the book. I, I got two chapters out of the book. 
I'm not kidding. It takes about 400 hours to write these things. It's basically a year of my life. And um, so the book is out there. It's $20. It's a beautiful hardback. Uh, There is so much in here, so much more that I didn't even touch this morning. I just touched a little piece. Um, Amazon sells it, I think, for 16 or 17. So I think our price out there is 16 or 17, somewhere in there. Don't quote me. All right. They know I don't. So, but here's the deal. I know there's some of you that you're on a shoestring budget and you just say, Hey, I don't have $16. I can't afford a $16 book. It will knock my budget out. I don't want you leaving without it. And so here's the deal. I just want you to walk back out to the table, just smile and say gift. And I've instructed the team out there to hand you one of these as a gift from Messenger International to you. Now, there are three conditions, though. Condition number one, if I give this to you, one per family, please. Condition number two, um, if I give it to you, you're gonna, I want to ask that you read it from cover to cover. And condition number three, when you're done reading it, I want you to find somebody and give it to them. Okay? That's all I ask. And so... This is the study. I walked through the book chapter by chapter in a large church in Atlanta, and this is made for individual or group study. So you can do it alone. You can do it as a family. You can do it as a small group. Now, what is this? Okay. I'm going to bait you. All right. You understand bait in, in Wisconsin. Okay. What is this? This is the study, but there's five hardback books in here, and it's only 12 or four, it's only $14 more than this. Okay, why am I giving you four extra hardback books for only $14? Because I want you to do a group. We need to recalibrate the church. So I hope you'll get this. You say, John, I just don't have time to do a small group. Well, then you got four books to give to people you love, to friends, right? So you can do it that way. The other thing is, if you weren't there Friday night, this is an excellent companion book called Driven by Eternity. We have that out there as well as the studies out there. The other thing is, Part two of Good or God is coming out in just two months. October 17th will be the national launch of Killing Kryptonite. That's the title of this next book. Kryptonite. What is kryptonite? That neutralized Superman's otherworldly powers. There is a kryptonite that is neutralizing us from taking our cities, from neutralizing us from being successful in the area God has called us, whether it's the marketplace or government. That's coming out in two months. Be on the lookout for it. Go to Amazon, get it. Go to our website. You can go to Barnes and Nobles. Just get it because it's a perfect companion to good or God. I love you very much, Pastor. Tom, thank you so very much. Are you coming up? Are you doing this? What's happening? You're doing it.